Let me read us uh, our passage here as we finish uh, the seventh church. So seven out of seven, the church of Laodicea, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, This is what the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and pitiable, pitiful, uh, pitiful and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested. And I shall to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be jealous or be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we come now just asking that you would illuminate us by the power of your Spirit, that we would hear these words, knowing that they are not just the preacher's words, but these are your very words spoken through your son as recorded and written down by the Apostle John. Yes, for these seven churches, for specifically this letter to the church at Laodicea, but by extension for all the churches throughout this age, including this morning here and the church here at Providence in Gretna. We just ask that you would be honored. We just Pray that we would learn and that you would soften our hearts to the truth that we see. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's do that. All right. Well, I believe most of you, somewhere between your sophomore and junior year, probably encountered the book, The Odyssey. By Homer. How many of you actually read it? Okay. And how many of you actually, I mean, when I say read it, actually read it? Did you, I think I kind of read it. You know, I read it enough to pass my English, my class, and kind of answer the questions. If the internet had been around, I probably would have asked Google, what is the Odyssey about? Uh, if I was kind of cliff notes then, you know, find it and those kinds of things. But if you remember that book, which obviously has been, is famous and is older than even the letter that we're looking at here— Uh, of this letter, this prophecy of Revelation, in that at the very beginning of the journey, uh, they're going along and they are warned that there are going to be what they call these sirens. And the sirens were kind of these scary creatures. Um, Actually, throughout Greek myths, I looked it up. It could be male or female, but I feel like in my memory, it was these sirens that were kind of female, that were kind of part animal, part human. And they would sing a song to the sailors that would be unbelievably alluring and attractive, and they would cause you to get pulled off 
of course. And so Odysseus is told to avoid them and avoid their entrapment. But the only way to get where they're headed is to go right past that island and to hear the song. And so uh, Circe tells Odysseus to avoid the entrapment. I'm going to tell you what to do. And she says that plug up your ears, take wax in your sailor's ears and plug them up so that you don't hear the song. Because if you hear it, you will not be able to avoid it. Those who hear it, the sailors, never ever return. And so they do that at the very beginning of the story. He actually wants to hear, and so they have to bind him, if you remember the story, to the mask, and he wants to get out, and they don't let him because they have the safety of the plugs in their ears. But the siren song has just become a phrase that is referring to something that is very alluring, but yet deadly. Something that looks like this would be what I really want. But if I get it, I get what I want, there are deadly consequences. Well, Scripture warns us of an alluring nature of, particularly the issue at Laodicea, the alluring nature of comfort, the alluring nature of prosperity. And so when I look at the church at Laodicea, I don't have to look very far from my own life and from the church in America to go, this is an extreme danger for us. If you remember back to Smyrna, the church that was persecuted— We have a hard time relating to that church because we don't see a lot of at least physical persecution. Most have not lost jobs. Most are not under the threat of their life or the life of their child. If they find out that you're a Christian, there are places in the world that are. But this church, which is ineffective in their witness, because as we'll see, they are neither hot nor cold. They are lukewarm. I see a lot here that is familiar with the church today and the dangers for us. And it's not just a danger for a church. It's a danger for us as individuals. And we need to learn from this how to run and avoid. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and I probably doubt you have ever prayed, Lord, take away prosperity. Keep me from being too successful. And yet... I think of Proverbs chapter 30, with its wisdom from Agur, we're told, is written this, that there are two things that he was then asked, two things he asks of you, to not withhold from me before I die. This is his desire. Keep worthlessness and every false word far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Well, why? It's the same reason And the same challenges that Laodicea faces here. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is Yahweh? Or lest I be impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. Not many of us, I think, have prayed that prayer. But there is a reality of self-assessment. And if anything we learn from Laodicea is that your self-assessment of how you're doing could absolutely be wrong. And their self-assessment is wrong. And the Lord is going to come, and he's going to come knocking, as we'll see here. The picture is. And he's on the outside of the church looking in. And I don't think anyone there would guess that's the case. Because it would seem there's not the same compromise, at least outwardly, that the other churches have faced. Similarly, there's, there's compromise here for sure, but something that would give the appearance of simply they're staying underneath the radar. Let's look this morning here at the church of Laodicea and this danger. 
And we're going to see a couple different calls to action. And they're going to be sandwiched in by a truth at the beginning here, verse 14, and a promise at the end. Looking at verse 14, we see a similar introduction to the letter and a truth revealed. Like we've seen over and over again, it goes back to the revelation of Christ at the beginning and or towards the end of chapter 1 of who he is. And it calls back to our mind who is speaking to the church. And so it begins, and to the angel, or as we've talked about, the messenger of the church in Laodicea. And if they were all together, as some believe, then they're going along one church, two church, three church, four church. And now he's all by himself to give this letter to this final church along the way. And John is to write in this messenger to deliver this. That this is what the amen, the faithful, and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says. Begins with these titles that go back to chapter 1 about the nature of who God is. And that Jesus is always faithful and true. And we've seen this double-edged sword before. Because if he is faithful and true and he has promised to keep you safe, then you say yes and amen and you get excited. But if he is faithful and true, he is also a faithful and true judge as much as a faithful and true savior. Doesn't change. Your relationship to him, depending on what you have done, in the sense of have you put your trust in Christ? What are you trusting in your works or are you trusting in him? But here we see it's a reminder that it is in Christ that all things find their amen. The promise of God find their end in Christ. That he is faithful and he is true. It's just seen throughout a lot of allusions here, which we won't go into about from the Old Testament. But I want to highlight the beginning of the creation of God because this is where it pulls you back. Not only to the beginning of the world. So you think of John chapter 1, 1. This isn't that he is a creation of God and a created being. This simply, this is from which the source of the world came to be. But John 1, 1, in a similar place, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And very similar in Colossians 1, and I think this is where this is important, that he is tying together not only the creation of the world, but in Revelation, the new creation. That this is even a promise looking forward. Because if you go back to verse 5, and the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, as it's said... In Revelation 1, verse 5, there is a push forward of this new creation we'll see throughout the rest of the book. But Colossians 1, he is the firstborn of the dead, this new creation. It's Christ, verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him are all things held together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven." 
Jesus is always faithful. He is always true. He is the first, not just in order, but in importance. And the call here to Laodicea is remember that. If you don't heed his warning, which every one of these letters is, is there some level of hope that he's even willing to address them. But Laodicea is going to be one of those churches where there is no commendation. Even Sardis, the beginning where the church is called dead or like dead. There are those, remember back to chapter 3 verse 4, a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. There's no such mention here at Laodicea. Something is missing. This city is described in uh, books of history of a city of great wealth. It's not known when it was destroyed by similar earthquakes that also affected that area in around 60 AD. Um, If it was Rome who didn't help them, or it could be that they refused help because they didn't need help, which I tend to think here that fits their profile pretty well. Every other city that was affected got help and Laodicea was so wealthy, they, they needed no help. They're known for their, their industries of banking, textile, that is clothing, medicine. It's of note, specifically an eye ointment, which connects later. And geogra- ge- the geography side as well important is that it was near the Heropolis. Warm, hot springs used for medicinal purposes. Near Colossae, where... They were known to have pure, cold, refreshing waters. What is their issue? Perhaps they would say, like many, I believe in this Jesus and who he is. But they haven't thought through all the implications for it. What they need, as we'll see, is the injection of the power of Christ. The resurrection power implied here, the beginning of not only the beginning of the world, but the beginning of the new creation, the firstborn of the dead. And with that image ingrained in our minds, we look at the first call to action in verse 15. And the first call to action here is simply to reject apathy. Pathos in, in Greek, passion. You put the A in front, means you're not passionate. So if you're one who is apathetic, you're just not passionate. You're not interested one way or the other. And it seems to be what is described here in this picture of hot and cold and lukewarm. They are something different. They're not on or off. They're just indifferent. Verse 15 Jesus says, I know your deeds. Which, of course, if those deeds are good, that's that's a good thing. That's a comforting thing. But this is not that. Because he knows their deeds. And they're neither neither cold nor hot. And what he wishes is that we're cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, which someone asked me a definition of that. And it's interesting. It's a term that's really defined by what it's not. How do you know it's lukewarm? Put your hand in a bath or you put your hand in water. Well, it's defined by not being hot. 
or not being cold. And because they are of that, neither hot nor cold, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. But let's dive into this picture and, and how it informs this understanding for us that we should look in every way to reject this. And we're going to see the root cause of this is going to be that siren song of prosperity. But it's this picture that is presented to us. And I appreciate the New King James in verse 16 because this idea of it kind of spit out, um, it can be more graphically explained by vomiting. And some of you might think of vomiting as spitting. I don't. I think of those kind of two separate things. It's okay to spit, but vomiting is something that is going to leave a very ugly aftertaste. If you ask my wife, she'll avoid vomiting at all costs. I don't have as big of an issue with it. I'm fine. Pregnancy is not kind because she's going to face that whenever, you know, she's faced it all four pregnancies. And I'm like, just get it over with. But she hates it and hates the after. It's interesting here, the picture here is something is so distasteful to Christ He's saying, my response is to vomit. It's pretty graphic language. Now, the idea of hot and cold, I think, is, is somewhat informed. Now, when I first came to this, and kind of the traditional understanding is that there is something that of a positive and a negative. And so, that could be, but I think it's probably a little more likely that actually being cold and hot are both positive things. He's just saying, be something. He wishes that they were cold or hot. I don't necessarily think there's a negative connotation with this. However, the point is, be engaged. Don't be apathetic. The reason I, I think that is, as you look at the, the area and the geography, is that Heropolis, you had these warm springs that were medicinal. And so you would go and just like any of us, after a, a hard, days of work, hard day of work and you're sore and you get into a hot tub, it feels good. Or they would be well known for near Colossae where you had refreshing water to drink. Where just on a hot day you're going, I just want to have ice. But he's saying their deeds are such that they are lukewarm that you would drink it and would be so disgusted by the taste that he would spit it out. They're neither this idea of cold or hot. Laodicea as a city built an aqueduct to bring water into their city. And at least it said that by the time the water got there, it didn't taste good at all. You guys have been different places. Some of you might even have a preference to the way your water tasted back home. If you were on a well or a city and you get to certain places and you can't drink the water there, you think it's disgusting. Well, the water in Laodicea was stale and disgusting. And this is the picture that they would know well. They've drank that water and had the gag reflex. And Jesus is saying, that is what you are to me. That's what your deeds are like. You're not doing anything that I can even praise. You're just simply not in the game. You're, you're, you're sitting on the bench, not engaged in ministry or influence in any way, shape, or form. That's why if you go to any coffee shop, today. You'll see advertisements for hot coffee and iced coffee. But you will see no 
would you like it lukewarm? Right? My little two-year-old, he'll run around and he has a sippy cup with him all day. And you know, for a while, the, the, the milk stays cold. But he will let you know the minute that thing goes sour. He'll psh, spit it out. You know, even for me, I don't mind it that much. You know, that's probably mean, but I'll go, you know, it's been out for a while. I'll give it to him and we'll see, we'll test it. And he will let you know pretty quickly, nope, that's been out too long. Time to get new milk. It's that idea here of it being lukewarm, something that becomes stale and repugnant and just that you have to vomit out. Now, what does that refer to for them? It refers to their deeds or their lack thereof and their witness to the world or their general fervor for the gospel. They're simply apathetic. This is the, you say you're a Christian, act like it conversation. It's caused, look at verse 17, he says. What causes this? This independence, this this idea that they don't, need Christ, that they have everything they need in this life, and they don't need anything else. They don't recognize their spiritual poverty because of all of their material wealth. Verse 17 says, because the Laodiceans say what? They say, quote, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That is, they have all the material things. They have food. They have a roof over their head. They have beautiful clothes to wear. And he says, What you don't understand is your self-assessment is completely wrong. In fact, what you don't know is on the outside, you look the part, you look right, you look like a successful person. He says, rather, you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. He's saying you are spiritually impoverished. And what's worse about this is they don't know it. And Jesus is letting them know you have valued the wrong things. And you have let these things that aren't in and of themselves wrong. It's not wrong to to have your needs met. It's to say you let those things distract you from what is spiritually important. And you start to think, this is common today. The Lord has blessed me. The Lord is happy. The Lord is—I'm— the Lord is, is blessing my family because everyone is healthy and the bills get paid and, and the business gets built. And there's not necessarily a connection because remember back to the church that you don't necessarily want to be a part of, Smyrna. They are the faithful church, but they are being persecuted. They're not wealthy. They don't look the part. And yet Jesus says they are wealthy spiritually. So this is the opposite side of that Everything's going great. And by that, you can maybe look and say, well, there's nothing going on that's too bad. And therein lies kind of the great lie that prosperity equals the Lord's favor, quote-unquote, or blessing. You don't see that throughout Scripture. There isn't a direct tie. Yes, you can follow principles in Proverbs, I think, and, and not gamble your money away. But you can't always draw the straight line to say just because someone's a Christian that life isn't difficult or that they won't face challenges or that they won't be persecuted or that they won't face poverty. In fact, you see the faithful and uncompromising church facing poverty and you see 
would seem at Laodicea, the church of apathy. And there has to be some level of compromise. And likely, we talked about before, the guilds and things in these communities, they're probably just following along, keeping their heads low, so that they can continue to churn out the money. And it's the very opposite of what... They, they think they're pretty smart, as it were, being able to be a Christian and live like the world. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. You've made the wrong assessments. He's looking for them to be passionate about the right things. Well, how about us? How about the church here? I think this is the idea of those in Laodicea. They're, they're playing church. They're, they're church in name only. And you might even feel in that self-evaluation that things aren't going so bad. And hopefully that's where a, a good church comes alongside and, and is able to remind you to look to the mirror that Scripture is to get a true evaluation. Because our self-evaluation can be wrong. And so we need to reject this idea that you just go through the motions and that there is no change that is required in, particularly verse 15, right? Your deeds. No, there is change required. It means something to say you are in Christ. It means something to say to your coworkers that I'm a disciple of, of Christ. And so we need to reject this idea that there are no demands that come on the Christian and we need to put that off. But with that comes this second part of not only putting this off and rejecting apathy, but embracing what is difficult for many of us. And that is embracing this idea of discipline, of discipleship. Because what we see here is the advice Jesus himself gives is not the advice you really want to hear, but it's the advice they need to hear. And his advice in verse 18 is that I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. This idea of refined by fire over and over again is this biblical picture of purifying one's life by removing sin. You're going to burn off all the impurities and that isn't going to be pleasant. But that's his advice. That's where you need to go and buy that because that will last. That will make you truly spiritually rich. And along with that, the picture here is of buying then white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. Do you remember verse 4 of Sardis? The ones who have not defiled their garments and they will walk with me in white. Again, looking to purity and he says, you use those to clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested. That concept of shame, it's rooted in the garden, right? Adam and Eve, when they realize they're, they're naked, they are ashamed. And he's saying, this is the moment in the church of Laodicea that they realize they thought they were clothed. But he's saying, you don't have anything. By that, right? You don't have any, you're not living the Christian life the way I've called you to. There, there's nothing here. You've, you've built everything on the foundation of Christ that is wood, hay, and stubble, and it's been burned away, and there's nothing there. 
So he says, take these, buy the gold refined, buy the garments that you're not going to be exposed for who you are in the future. And then he says, in an eye salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. That's why he builds on 17, their wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. And here he says, basically, right, you are poor, so go get some gold that actually matters. You are naked, therefore go get some clothes. They're cold and they're naked and they are blind. Blind to see what really is most important. I don't think you make necessarily too much of this, but it is interesting Because as you look at Laodicea, those are the three things that they would pride themselves on. Banking and gold and refining. Textiles, clothes. They'd have closets full. And then medicinally, what they're known for is they developed this eye salve to anoint in the eyes for medicinal purposes to help people fight off infection, fight off disease in the eyes. He takes those things that they think they're good at. And he says, no, you, you, those aren't what's important. Understand, you need to go get those things, but get those things in the right way and the things that matter, which are spiritually. Let persecution, let trials, let tribulations refine you and sanctify you that you might be spiritually rich and that you might see Pursue these things. Why? Verse 19. Those whom that Jesus loves, he says, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Laodicea is on the the scale of of the other uh, four with them, five churches that are not doing so well. Seems like Philadelphia is doing well. Smyrna is doing well. Most of these churches are not doing well. But in each case, the Lord is kind. The Lord gives hope for them. Saying, I don't want this for you. I I love you. And therefore, I'm going to be truthful with you. Why? Because he is the faithful and the true witness. If I did not love you, I would not be telling you the truth. But I love you and I'm going to tell you the truth. Because I care what happens. He They might be apathetic, but Jesus is not apathetic. He cares, and he wants, even if it's difficult, even if that purification is painful, he wants them to be purified and reproved and disciplined. And therefore, they are to be called to be zealous and to repent. As I said in verse 15, it's their deeds that are in question, or the lack thereof of of the, the deeds that are valuable, that are are spiritual, the lack of fruit. You have these pictures of poverty and riches, of being hot nor cold, but rather they are lukewarm. It seems to be wrapped into here of this call then to be zealous, to be not apathetic, to lack passion, but to be passionate and look and to stand and to repent. They have deficiencies. Remember, they're poor, they're blind, they're naked. Maybe they're problem solvers, like many of us. And they go, well, I I can start to fix that. And they've been so self-sufficient that they start thinking, 
I know how to fix that deficiency. I'll be a better person. I'll be nicer. We do all these things to to make it appear to have other people kind of praise us, but those aren't the ways that you fix those spiritual deficiencies. You can't get spiritually rich by building a business. You, You can't spiritually see with your eyes if you simply go to the right kind of eye doctor. You can't get spiritually clothed by going out and finding it in any store. This isn't what he's talking about there. There are pictures to point you in the right direction. Think of the Gospels, and this goes back to this understanding that Jesus has come to those who understand they are sick, that they are poor, that they have a need. You don't go to the physician, right, to get a cure if you don't think you are sick. Laodicea doesn't think they're sick, and Jesus is calling them to be zealous and realize, no, this is what you actually are. And now that they're ready, guess what? He's ready to give them the cure and give them the thing they need most so that they can begin to grow, to begin to exercise the influence and the ministry they were meant to have. It might be difficult, but it comes through the Lord continuing to discipline us. Through different means and different ways, as you continue to encounter the Word in your life, continue to see things that you don't like to see, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and it seems like it's never-ending, and that's true. In this life, it isn't. You're going to continue to be sanctified over and over and over again, and once you think you're mature, you start to realize, I'm not as mature as I, as I thought I was, and that's part of being mature. There seems to be this church here. They, they, they lack a love for Christ, similar to Ephesus, but there, there is not the kind of good and strong doctrine of Ephesus. They, they lack a love for Christ. They love for his word, a love for his people. And so the picture here is they're called to reject what they are, apathetic, to embrace the zealous discipline of the Lord— But remember, it's sandwiched between the truth of Christ being a faithful and true witness and a promise that he offers hope. Because then the picture moves, not of poverty and riches, but of one simply knocking at a door in verse 20. And we'll see that the promise comes that there is hope. Because if you open the door, he is willing to forgive says verse 20 that behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me for most I think if you grew up like me and you know you did awanas and things I had to memorize this verse it was usually used in a, in a salvation context but but here you really see it's the context here of the church he's knocking on the church saying this is the issue right Jesus is not inside the church. He's saying, the picture is me standing outside saying, would you let me in? And I don't think that, we understand this is just a picture. You see the, the king, the warrior with flames coming from his eyes, a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think he needs them, quote unquote. He can beat the door down if he wants. But he's saying, I am here. It's an invitation for one who doesn't need one, 
but in his kindness, he's saying, knock, knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, he's saying, I'd be, I'll come in. I'll dine with you and you with me. That is to say, despite all that is wrong in Laodicea, which is seemingly a lot, so much so that there's nothing good he can pick up on and commend them for. It's all condemnation. We use the phrase, something that's disgusting or someone has done something disgusting, you make me vomit. Jesus is saying, they make him vomit. Yet at the same time, he's saying, be zealous, repent, and I am more than willing to meet with you, dine with you, to renew a relationship with you. That is the promise, verse 21, again, of what we've seen all through seven churches. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on his, my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The invitation there wasn't for conversion, although I think in so many ways throughout Scripture, if the shoe fits, wear it, right? If, if somebody here this morning, if, if Christ has never come into your life, and by that I mean that you have repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in him, then that's how you have a relationship with him. But there are those who have a relationship with him who aren't living zealously, who need to hear this as well, who need to be kind of sobered up to the delusion that they're doing well when they're not doing well. They think they're spiritually rich and they are spiritually impoverished. It's easy to pretend you can sing loud and you can serve the church, but what is really going on inside of your heart? But the Lord is kind, and today is the day of salvation, is what the scriptures say. It's a good reminder to pull the car over, to look at the world we live in, to look at our own church and our own country and our own prosperity. Where are we at? Do we find ourselves thinking that we are rich and wealthy and in need of nothing? And there's something, if you ever notice that, when you think you have enough, you see it all the time. I've got family, a roof over my head, enough money to pay the bills, shows to watch on the weekends, maybe a hobby you really enjoy. All of a sudden, I'm good. There's no drive. See, some people where, you know, they work their whole life to get to a place where they can stop working and then they stop working and kind of look around and go, oh, there, there was actually something about the, the work that was fulfilling. There's just something that we start to think we lose our drive, we lose our, our passion That's what seems to be here with Laodicea, the issue. It's that siren song that the city was calling to them. So with that picture, I'd ask the same question that for you, because everyone's different and everyone has different passions and everyone has different desires and everyone has different temptations. What are the songs you are hearing? What are, what are the songs that the world sings to you? The temptations 
of pride, to, to build your, your own name, to think, I don't need to pray. I mean, it'd be good to pray, but I don't need to pray. I don't have to pray. Why? Because no one will know whether I prayed today or not. But does that reveal one who believes, well, I think I'm rich. I don't need that. Versus someone who realizes their own poverty and spiritual need. There's always a temptation to think we don't need others. We don't need the church. And this is a good reminder again. That is where the Lord works in his people. And so as we prepare our hearts for the, for the Lord's table, I want you to kind of be left with that question. What are those songs that are, are tempting, the things that you are hearing? And to be reminded that there are battles being waged, ones you can't see, ones that are tempting to think that I've just got my own thing going on, to kind of get apathetic about spiritual things and to not realize that you are an integral part of that. The Lord would use you if you would strive to be used. So don't be lulled to sleep. Rather, ask the Lord to give you strength. And that might mean plugging your ears like those sailors to, the, to all the things that the world says are good and to commit to pursuing that life of discipline and discipleship to the Lord, knowing that that is ultimately what he closed you with. That is something that when the end comes, you can say, or he can say, which is most important, well done and good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, We are reminded as we look to the church at Laodicea of all the the temptations that the world brings, even just in our own hearts, the temptation to think that we have what we need on our own, which we do not. What we need comes from you and you alone, even those things that are difficult, the trials, the persecutions, the tribulations that come, the difficulties, even those are meant for our good. Even those are meant to refine us, to purify us as gold is refined. As we are to look at our life and to examine the things that we value and the things that we hold dear Help us to be reminded, just as this letter was meant to remind the church at Laodicea of the things that are most important, the things that matter, the matter for not just now, but for all eternity. So use that as a, just a call for renewal in our hearts and our minds, the things that we should prioritize, the things that we should value as we go out this week into this world as your people. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.